Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. Our scripture today comes from the book of Esther. Uh, if you would like to find the book of Esther, it will be very illuminating today. Esther is kind of right in the middle of the New Testament or Old Testament, uh, right before uh, Job. So if you open it up and you get to Psalms, just flip back about 30, 40 pages, and uh, you'll find Esther. Esther, chapter 4, is what we'll be uh, looking at today in the sermon. I want to read the first four verses, and then we'll look at the rest of them as the sermon progresses. This is the word of the Lord, Esther, chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping, and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you may be seated. morning again. So you are in church, and you are in the middle of the series. Literally, I think this is, oh, you're just over the, the hump on this series, but we've been going through a, a, a group of, of texts with this idea of life in, in faith is a road that has many whys upon it, and the path of faith is choosing to go the way of God when there are many things and many scenarios in our life where we choose or can choose another way. And those are daily choices. Those are daily renewals of our commitment to walk by faith, to live by faith. And so we've looked at the many different whys that we come to in the road in this series. We've looked at the, the why of, of indifference. We've looked at the why of, of personal gratification. We've looked at the, the why in the road of envy. Last week, we looked at the why of the road of trials. As we looked at the book of Ruth, we saw that the, the why and the road of, of following God sometimes requires us to not rely upon our common sense, but ultimately to make sure that we are relying on his covenant loyalty. And there are circumstances where our common sense, our self-reliance on our own ability to solve problems, can and will lead us away from God's plan. And so, we have been going through these trials. I've picked each of these different scriptures because they illustrate that, that, that choice and the consequences of that choice. This week, we continue by looking at Esther and the why in the road that we look at in the story of Esther is the why of preservation. We are facing preservation as a, as a person, as a group. The reason that I, I want to preach on Esther is because I believe this text of Esther is a text, literally, for a time such as this, a phrase that we will see is used in this chapter. You see, our faith is increasingly putting us in danger. It will increasingly put us at odds with major portions and major currents in our culture. Many of you have experienced some of this firsthand, whether you are in the workplace and you are finding corporate policies that are requiring mass subscription, but that have elements in it that you cannot in your faith affirm and ratify. 
I know of, of an individual who, who works at, in, a, in a position in his workplace that is expecting him to be more and more of a promoter of ideologies, of the, the new sexual ethic, the agenda of the LGBTQ community, and that is becoming more and more difficult to resist. We live in a, in a world where you don't know, but you might end up with a, a, a wedding invitation in your mailbox that puts in front of you on the front lines the question, what do I do if I show up to this wedding? How can I be gracious but also faithful to, to my commitment? As, as the worldview of our, of our societies, the worldview of our country goes more and more away from biblical Christian ideals, we are finding conflict in our families. The question of being faithful and being at thanksgiving is becoming harder for some of us. All of these have immense pressure upon us the idea of us being able to preserve our way of life and, and potentially even our life itself is intention, is even in crisis. And the forecast, as we look at the currents in our world, is not optimistic. It looks more and more dire. It looks like the, 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 the turf and terrain that, that we can live faithfully is going to shrink. And there will be new areas, new, new front lines opening up that deal with uh, even more essential parts of our witness. And so, the book of Esther is for such a time as this. Because we are headed towards, if not in the midst of, one way or another, the why of preservation. The why of of survival. And as we look at that why, there are two ways to go. And we are watching the faith community right now wrestle with which of these two ways they will go. And each and every one of us in this room will decide one of these ways. The first way is compromise. Change, adapt, work out what is intention so that it is not an issue. Compromise. Read the Bible a little differently. Take a softer view. Just become a little bit more silent, ambiguous, uncommitted about some of these things. That's... That's the, the, the one side of the choice. And if we are not going to take that side of, of, of the decision, of the why, then we must take the other path, the path of faith. And when the path of faith, my friends, calls for something that is a bit scary, it calls for the way of courage. The way of faith is the way of courage. That is the world that we are living in. And, and quite frankly, if it's, if it's something that we are, are surprised by, it is because we have lived in something of an anomaly the last couple generations where we haven't had to feel this tension of preservation and faith. But the, the history of the world has experienced this tension. I, I recognize as I was looking at this particular issue of choosing the way of faith that the average evangelical church, the average evangelical message doesn't really touch on the need for courage. We have failed, many of us in the pulpit, to explain that the way of faith is a way of courage. I think of most, of, of most evangelical presentations of the gospel you know, God has a wonderful plan for your life. All you need to do is repent and believe in the gospel. But the world that we are headed into, God's wonderful plan for your life is going to look a lot like suffering. 
and ostracism and persecution and sacrifice. We are not preparing ourselves for the way that is ahead of us. And so we have found ourselves in a place of being unprepared because we have forgotten that the gospel calls the way of faith a way of courage. And so my goal for our message today is to first and foremost inform you of the need for courage, for your faith to persevere. It must be a faith with courage. And also to give you strength to recognize that the faith that God calls you to, the courage that God calls you to, he provides for you if you seek it. So as we look at this passage in the story of Esther, and I'm going to explain all of what Esther's about and make sure that it, uh, we, we know this book and its context as we go through it. But as we go through it, the story of Esther is going to show us three reasons why the way of faith requires courage. The first reason is that faith exists in a hostile world. The second reason is that faith encounters personal danger. And the third is that faith expects costly obedience. We're going to look at each of these as we seek to choose the way of faith. So the, 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 the first reason the way of faith requires courage is that faith exists in a hostile world. We've been using the acronym CASKET to kind of understand where all of these stories fit in the Old Testament. CASKET, C, stands for creation, Genesis 1 through 11. A stands for Abraham, the, the uh, patriarch, which is Genesis 12 through 50. S stands for Sinai, which is the, the giving of the law and the living under the law from uh, Exodus 1 to about 1 Samuel 10. And then we have the period of the kings where God rules his people through the, the, the King David, and then that splits into two kingdoms before finally breaking down into disobedience, which leads the people into exile. They are taken, the northern kingdom, to, by the Assyrians, and the southern kingdom, Judah, by the Babylonians. And then in 539 B.C., the uh, Babylonians are conquered by the Persians, and the first Persian king, Cyrus, allows God's people, the, the, the Jews of Judah, to return and start rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. As we look at the book of Esther, we are looking at uh, a people that are, is living in exile, but that in, in strict terms falls in the uh, return back to the land because some of the people, like Esther and, and, and whatnot, stayed in Persia. They did not go home. And so they are living in a foreign land. They are living in a condition where they are the outsiders. So we can think about the period of Esther as being very similar to exile. They're not in their homeland. They're in a foreign land. And that's what Esther and, and Mordecai are dealing with. Let's understand the characters of our story. We have the king. His name is Ahasuerus or otherwise known as, as Xerxes. And his reign is from 486 to 465 B.C. He is the king over the entire land of Persia. Okay, And as king over the land of Persia, he makes laws, he makes decrees, and those uh, affect everybody living in the entire area of the Middle East, which is where the entire people of the Jewish, uh, the entire Jewish people live. So inside this kingdom, inside of the, 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 the king's city, Susa, there's this Jewish man named Mordecai. Who's Mordecai? Mordecai, we, we heard his name listed in, uh, in our chapter 4. We meet Mordecai in Esther chapter 2, verse 5. We're told of him. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. So Mordecai is a, is a man with, with Jewish pedigree, uh, goes all the way back to uh, being related to, the, to the King Saul. And so he is Mordecai. That's who he is. He's a faithful Jew living in Persia. And then we have Esther. Esther is the character the book is, written, uh, is named after. Who's Esther? 
We meet Esther in chapter 2, verse 7. Mordecai was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So Esther is is in a relationship with Mordecai, kind of like Mordecai's her dad. We also learn in Esther 2.10 that Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. So Esther is living in Persia, but she is not living in Persia as an identified Jewish person. She is hiding that part of her identity. Barry Webb uh, comments on the situation that we find uh, Mordecai and Esther in this way. He says, Persia is their entire ever-present environment, and the general problem they face is powerlessness. They live in a world where they have no power, where they are at the whim of whatever the king and, and the officials wish to do. Now, is this at all relevant to us? to know this background, to know that uh, God had a person named Mordecai and a person named Esther in a culture where they had no power? Oh, it's absolutely relevant. Because as Christians, the Apostle Peter tells us in chapter 2, verse 11 of uh, of his first letter, that Christians live in this world with the status of exiles and strangers. Now, why do we call strangers strangers? Because they're strange. That's our identity. We are strange people in the world. That is what we are. That that, that is something that we have to recognize. In this world, the Christian's identity is an exile is a stranger. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, uh, 18, these words. Uh, I'm sorry, 15, 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That is what Jesus says is the lot of the disciple. The world hates you because you are not of the world. We live in a hostile world. Not just are we strangers, not just are we strange, but we live in a hostile world. There is another character in the book of Esther. His name is Haman. We meet Haman in in, Esther. Chapter 3, verse 1, where we are told, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So suddenly we have this man named Haman who has all the power underneath the king. And the problem is that Haman and Mordecai don't get along. Mordecai sees Haman walking or, or coming down the street And everybody's supposed to bow. And Mordecai does not bow. Mordecai becomes a sworn enemy of Haman. And Haman is full of wrath towards Mordecai. So much so that he doesn't just want to get vengeance on Mordecai for his slight. He wants to eradicate every person that belongs to the people that Mordecai belongs to. So we read Haman's anger. He goes to King Ahasuerus, and he wants this done. Esther chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples of all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. So it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. 
So Haman, powerful man, is angry at Mordecai and therefore all of Mordecai's people. He hates the Jewish people. And he now has the power and the money to get the king to pass a decree to kill everybody that belongs to the Jewish people. And all of the Jewish people live within the borders of Persia. This is a decree of genocide, a decree of certain extermination. And that's awful angry for just one not bowing the head. That, that, seems just a, that seems a bit unproportionate, right? I mean, I can understand. Maybe Mordecai needs a, 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 a demerit or something. But the whole group, what's going on? Well, here's where we have to read the, 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 the Scriptures carefully because every word is given to us for an important reason. And who is Haman? Who does he belong to? We are told that Haman is an Agagite. An Agagite. Why would we have to know he's an Agagite? Well, because the Agagites descend from King Agag, which is part of the people of the Amalekites. And when we go back into the book of Exodus, we see that the Amalekites came up against Moses and the people in the wilderness and, and went to war trying to exterminate them at that time. And Moses was able to be victorious, but King Amalek was able to survive. So several hundred years later, God told King Saul, I want you to go take care of the descendant of Amalek. I want you to go after King Agag. And Saul did not finish the job. King Agag was left alive under Saul's disobedience. And so here we are hundreds of years later, and an Agagite exists. An Agagite who has had a centuries-long feud with the people of God, who on two previous uh, uh, opportunities was unsuccessful in going to war. But now he has the advantage, and he's going to press it. He's going to finally destroy the Jewish people. You see, what we are looking at between Mordecai and Haman is a snapshot of a larger conflict. This is the conflict set up in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which tells us that the seed of the woman is always going to be at war with the seed of the serpent. If the entire Jewish people are destroyed, who else is destroyed? The promise of the Messiah. This is a major spiritual war. And that is what is going on. And that is why... Esther is such an important book for us to recognize as we too live as exiles and strangers in this world. We must remember that the Christian's existence is on a battlefield. We call the church the church militant because we live in a state of spiritual warfare. That is what we are in this world. Until Christ returns, this world is occupied by enemies of Christ and by spiritual forces that are turning things again and again to try and destroy or stop the advancement of the gospel. Paul describes this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, which I need to turn to. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, New Testament, right, uh, right after Galatians 6, 12, we are told this. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul reminds us that the conflict that we are in day to day has this, this invisible hugeness to it that we don't even recognize. That your faith is a, is a piece of a major battle that is either uh, elevating or tearing down great spiritual powers. We can't see it. But that is what is going on. It is that conflict that is going on between Mordecai and Haman. 
So as we look at the setting of, of, of Esther 4, we see that faith exists in a hostile world. And if we are going to live in a hostile world, we have to ask ourselves, what way are we going to take to preserve ourselves? Are we going to take the way of compromise? The road to compromise is shown right here in our passage. Look at verse 4. When, young, uh, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Why is, why is Esther so upset that, she, that Mordecai is wearing sackcloth? Because Mordecai is identifying himself as a Jew. All the Jews are wearing sackcloth, and the wearing of sackcloth made him a target. Esther's solution to Mordecai's distress is, cover yourself up. Disappear. Don't make a scene. Minimize your differences. Avoid your distinctiveness. Don't let people know you're a Jew. Hide. That's the road to compromise. What do we do? It's a tempting road. What do we do? I mean, do we, do we insist Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life? Or do we kind of hold that back? It's a bit divisive. Do we confess that God has a law on our sex lives? Or do we hold that back? When our workplace says, I want you to wear this pin. I want you to put up this sticker that communicates a completely different worldview, one that is antithetical to the gospel of grace, what do we do? Do we take off our sackcloth and look like everyone else? But there is a road of courage. How do we get on the road of courage? First, we have to accept the status of exile and stranger as natural and necessary. Quit thinking it's weird that you stick out. Quit thinking it's weird that people don't accept you as a Christian. The world isn't going to accept Christians because you do not belong to this world. So stop being surprised when everything in the world is trying to shut you up and make you uncomfortable and make you feel like to say what is true is wrong and disgusting. Stop being surprised. They're following their script. Recognize the hatred that you are experiencing is their hatred of Christ. Not you. It is part of the spiritual battle. As Jesus told the disciples in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if there's any encouragement to the road of courage at this point in our story is to know this, that when you endure a hostile world by refusing the way of compromise, when you take persecution, ridicule, and rebuke for the name of Christ, you honor Christ. And Christ notices. Listen to the last beatitude, Matthew 5, 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Doesn't feel like a blessing. Feels awful. But be encouraged, the Lord who has all authority on heaven and on earth says that you, being persecuted for my name's sake, are blessed and will be blessed. 
pursue blessing in a hostile world, not through the favor of a world that is against Christ, but trusting in Christ who can give the blessing he promises. So faith exists in a hostile world. Second, we have to recognize the reason that we need courage is that faith encounters personal danger. Let us look at our passage, verses 5 through 12. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak. And commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me... I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. So in the story of Esther, an amazing thing happens. Esther hides her Jewishness, and she enters this beauty pageant, this competition, to become the next queen of King Ashuerus. And she wins it. Leaves out some of the details, but I think she won it impressively. At any rate, she is now living in the palace. She is now the queen of Persia. And she is in this place of great safety. She's in a fortress. And here Mordecai, on the other side of the king's gate, announces this terrible decree that says all of the Jews are going to be exterminated. What you need to do is go tell the king to change his mind. Suddenly, Esther is in a place where her faith is putting her on a path of personal danger. Mordecai is calling Esther to take action to save her people. And we see in this dialogue, this back and forth, that there are two ways that are being examined here. First, again, is the way of compromise. Look again closely at verses 5 and 6. Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to the open square of the city, uh, uh, went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. You see where Esther is? She has to send Hathak out and out and out a great distance outside of the king's gates. Mordecai or Esther is safe. She's over here. She's not in the square. She's not where this decree is being published and talked about. She's over here. Mordecai is a great distance. Mordecai is in danger. Is she in danger? All that distance. All those walls, that's safety. She's hidden in the king's palace. Where could you be safer? Right? And how did she get there? She got there by applying hard Mordecai's lesson. Don't let them know you're a Jew. And so she has gotten to this place of safety by denying her Jewishness. She looks like everyone else. She acts like everyone else. There's this decree to exterminate the Jews, and nobody knows that in the middle of the palace is a Jew married to the king. That's how effective she has been. 
living the way of compromise. She is a chameleon, indistinguishable from other Persians. Karen Job's commentary describes Esther well. She says, up to this point in the story, while Esther was pretending to be a pagan, she was controlled by her circumstances. She has been passive in the story, not initiating action, but following along the path of least resistance. And it's worked. Has it not? It's, it's taken care of her. It's put her in the safest possible place. What about us? Do we take the way of, of compromise? We've all learned, keep your faith private. Don't talk about that at family. Keep your faith hidden, under control. Just do your job. You don't have to be a Christian here. Do we choose the path of compromise, of, of, of finding our safety in disappearing? Why not stay the course? It's working. But there are two ways in front of Esther. That's the path of compromise, the one that she is, has taken a long way. There is also the path of courage. But when we look at the path of courage, we recognize that faithfulness, requires her to face personal danger. If she is going to be a Jew, a faithful Jew, she has to throw off the disguise. She has to tell the king, you're married to one of these despicable people you have decreed to destroy. And she has to go to the king when the law is clear. You come to the king without invitation, and if the king does not lift up his scepter, your sentence is immediate death. She has no reason to believe that the king is going to take her because 30 days have gone by since the king has been warm to Esther. He's had a lot of other wives come and go. Is Esther still that special? This is the way of courage. To do something. To be a Jew, to be part of God's covenant community, requires her to risk her life. To risk her preservation is the path of faithfulness. That really stinks to be an Esther. Glad we're not in that situation. Except we are. Faith encounters personal danger is in front of every Christian. It is the DNA of living as an a exile and a stranger in this world. Listen to what Paul tells the Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Just as much as it has been appointed in God's eternal counsel for you to come to faith, it is appointed in his eternal counsel that in that faith you will suffer because of it. Bizarre, but true. This is the way God has determined it to be. And I'm not saying anything that's a surprise. You recognize that bearing the name of Christ, confessing Christ, is putting you on a conflict was so much. It is, it is putting you in a place where you are having to risk your lives. Being Christian will bring us suffering. It will make us jokes. It will limit and even end our careers. It will kill relationships. And in many places in this world, it is killing Christians. The number of people who die every year in this world because they are a Christian is a staggering number. We are only insulated from that because for a long time we have lived in something akin to a palace. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived on the, on the uh, eve and then all the way through World War II before he became a martyr, summed up the Christian life like this. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. There's no taking the way of faith without risking your life. So what do you do? What do you do with the wedding invitation, with the corporate policy, with the relationship when it's contradicting your faith walk? Well, let's hold on to that and look now at the third reason that faith, the way of faith requires courage. And that is this, that faith expects costly obedience. Faith expects costly obedience. Let's finish the chapter. Verse 13, Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish... I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Costly obedience. Very scary. Mordecai answers Esther's uh, declaring that if I do this, I die by reminding her that if she doesn't do this, she dies. To believe firmly, he tells her, that God is ruling this situation and that his providence will deliver his people somehow. That's not in doubt to Mordecai. Mordecai's faith that this decree will fail is not in doubt. His question is, will Esther take the path of courage? Because it seems, by looking at God's providence, that it's not an accident that this woman has been put in the ear of the king. And so he says, who knows? Maybe it's through you. But if it's not through you, don't think that the way of compromise will save you. You will perish. What we need to recognize is even when we don't see God, and the amazing thing about the book of Esther is the word God and Lord is never mentioned. It's, it's, it's absent the name of God but when we look at the story of Esther, we see his fingerprints and his workings in every single story. Things that are happening are happening because the Lord is working. We need a confidence like Mordecai if we're going to take the road of courage in God's providence, in knowing that God is in control of all things, even when he's invisible. The way of compromise asks the question, must we act? Verse 13 puts the, the what if of our series right in front of us. Do not think for yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. If you want to take the path of compromise and say, I'm, I'm hidden, I'm disguised, I can ride this out, no one will know. Mordecai says, don't be stupid. Blending in has its limits. The decree that was published says every Jew. Either Esther is going to be exposed as a Jew at some point, and she will die. Or she has become so good at compromise that she will expose herself as not a Jew and be judged as such. You see, the way of compromise leads to destruction. 
I put up, a, I want to show a cartoon for some levity, but also because I think it's, it's, it, it hits the point. I do like the far side. I've made you look at far side cartoons many times. But this is a, a cartoon. This is a, a Professor Wainwright, we're told, painstaking field research to decode the language of bears comes to a sudden and horrific end. So this professor has tried to learn the language of bears, and he's, he's infiltrated into the cave of bears, and he's, he's sitting down in the living room of bears, and he's, he's been listening to all the grunts and groans and roars of bears, and he's, he's, he's decoding their language. He's so close to being able to speak bear. He's this close. He says, Zuppo, Zuppa. Dang, this one's hard. Zippo, zippa, zipper. Yes, that's it, zipper. Because the bear can see right down the middle. He's wearing a bear suit with a big fat zipper. And that's the last thing he learns before he's destroyed. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, eventually your zipper will show. The game of compromise will out you. It will out you by showing your zipper, or it will out you by showing you have no zipper. You're not a Christian. You're acting like a pagan because you are a pagan. Mark chapter 8, verses 35, says this. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Same choice that Mordecai puts in front of Esther. If your purpose is to preserve your life, compromising smoothing it out, doing whatever it takes to blend in and fit in, you will lose in the most ultimate sense. But if your pursuit is to know me to the extent that you are willing to lose your life, to say, if I perish, I perish, then you will save it. And so the path of courage, Esther responds to Mordecai, I will go, and if I perish, I perish, we see in this answer that our obedience can be costly. But it's worth remembering. Our obedience is never in vain. Jesus says in Matthew 10.32, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. You recognize if you lose the job because you're a Christian, but you've confessed Christ faithfully, the Savior in heaven hears your confession and you are honored in heaven. And you will be honored at the last day when they will say, this one was faithful when they threatened him with his job. This one was faithful when they threatened him with no more relationship. This one was faithful, Father. Honor him. That is what we must live for. That is what the path of courage rewards. God's providence uses our faithfulness. We see in the book of Esther that she takes the challenge, and in taking the challenge, she is able to reverse the decree. And the Jews are saved, and Haman is destroyed. It's an amazing story. Read Esther this week. And God used Esther, who was in the right place. And what did he use? Her faithfulness. Now, you may be asking this question, what, am I disqualified? I listen to this, and I have been on the path of compromise. I have worn the bear suit. I'm in the bear suit. I am so weak. I can't throw my life away. I, I can't afford it. I, I have no courage. I wish I had courage, but I, I don't have it. I'm scared. Beloved, Christ provides the grace you need to stand. When Esther says, hold a fast on my behalf, Esther recognized the courage is not going to come from her. It's going to come from her placing her dependence upon the Lord. 
And so I want you to know this. Christ doesn't leave you without his strength. Here's what we are told in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 to 18. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Christ didn't just purchase your souls. He purchased a suit of armor to keep you through every trial. So how do we take the path of faith in a hostile world? You have to have courage. You're going to have to face the office policy. You're going to have to face the wedding invite. You're going to have to face the ultimatum in the relationship. That's coming. You can't avoid it. So what are you going to do? Remember this lesson from Esther. God's providence has placed you for such a time as this. It is time to take off the bear suit and put on the armor of God. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.